welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have Murder's Mandate by W.T. Ballard. Willis Todd Hunter Ballard was a prolific pulp writer. He's probably best known for his detective stories under the W.T. Ballard name, most of which appeared in Black Mask. His most notable creation was Hollywood troubleshooter Bill Lennox, who appeared in more than 25 stories in Black Mask, as well as a handful of novels. Ballard also wrote some of the Jim Anthony super detective stories under the Jim Grange house name. All told, Ballard wrote about a thousand stories for the Pulps during his long career. He also wrote several crime and mystery novels, as well as Western novels under the name Todd Hunter Ballard and a number of pseudonyms, including Clay Turner, Jack Slade, and a host of others. Ballard was also a first cousin of Nero Wolf creator Rex Stout, with whom he shared the Todd Hunter middle name. This story, originally published in the September 1945 Thrilling Detective, features Ballard's Los Angeles private detective character Sam Boyd in the then frontier town of Las Vegas. This story is included in our Brick Pickle Media book, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales Volume 1. This book, along with Volumes 2 and 3, is now available in print and ebook formats. It features some of the best pulp stories from the pages of Thrilling Detective. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. And you can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website. That link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. Or you can donate to the cause right here through Anchor. And with that, on with the show. Murder's Mandate by W.T. Ballard Private sleuth Sam Boyd plays for high stakes in a western gambling town when he puts his chips on a scheme to prove his own innocence of crime and solve a grim death riddle. Chapter 1. Blonde Menace Sam Boyd was sitting in Tony Foster's law office when Roger Bowman was ushered in. He made no effort to lift his big shoulders away from the leather chair back. A slight motion of the lawyer's hand told Boyd that Foster wanted him to remain. Roger Bowman paused, staring at Boyd. Bowman was a thin man in his middle fifties with a tight-lipped mouth that was only partly screened by a close-clipped mustache. I want to speak to you alone, he said to Foster. This is highly confidential. Boyd's my confidential man, said Foster. Sit down. For an instant, it seemed to be the watching boy that Bowman would refuse. Then, with a slight shrug to express his anger, he eased himself into the edge of the chair. Boyd appeared half asleep, but he was studying Bowman's face, thinking that here was a bad man to anger, and it seemed that Foster was angering him unnecessarily. You're the Norcross lawyer, Bowman said to Foster sharply. I'm here to warn you. Warn me? Warn you. Norcross and I owned Western Chemical together, and I bought a share in 1942 for $70,000. In return, he was to stay out of the business. Foster nodded. And I advised him not to sell. Your price wasn't enough, counting the goodwill for 15 years of operation. That wasn't for you to say. Frank Norcross made the deal. He's dead, and now this daughter of his, with you as her lawyer, files suit, claiming her father was not physically fit to transact business. Then I took advantage of him. Foster showed no feeling. We've two doctors ready to go testify. Are you here to settle out of court? Settle? Bowman lost control for an instant and rose from his chair. 
Sam Boyd rose also. That was one reason he was there, to see that visitors behaved. Bowman looked at the still-seated lawyer, at the standing Boyd. Hiding behind a strong arm, huh? Well, here's something your strong arm man can help you with. Read this. You'll forgive me if I keep hold of it. I don't trust you, my friend. He drew a piece of paper from his pocket, circled the deck, and held it so that Foster could read. You should recognize Frank Norcross's signature. If you doubt it's his, we'll try a handwriting expert. Foster was not even looking at the paper. What is this? A mocking note came back into Bowman's voice. Only a letter, signed by Frank Norcross, admitting that he had a secret agreement with the German Die Trust in direct violation with the Trading with the Enemy Act. I gave him the choice of signing this when I bought him out, or being exposed. I should have exposed him, but we've been partners for 15 years and he was an old man. I bought him out instead. I broke the German connection, I straightened out the business and made it pay. And I'm not going to have his daughter step in and grab the results of my hard work. Either you withdraw his recovery suit or I'll publish this letter. I'll take it into court and explain why it's necessary for me to force Norcross out in the first place. Blackmail. Foster said softly, You forced him to sell for peanuts. No one wouldn't dare refuse and now you're trying to blackmail us. Bowman shrugged. It can't anger me, he said, returning the letter to his pocket. I just wanted you to know. I had a little ace up my sleeve that you hadn't heard about. Foster didn't answer. Instead, he reached for the phone and put in a long-distance call for Ann Norcross at Las Vegas, Nevada. It took five minutes for the call to be completed, and no one in the office spoke during the interval. When the connection was made, Foster said tightly, Listen, Ann, this is very important. Roger Bowman is in my office. He has a letter that your father signed, a letter which states that your father had a working agreement with the German Die Trust that he maintained the connection even if he entered the war. He listened for a moment. That's right, it's dynamite. We won't have a chance if he tells the story in court and makes a jury believe it. No, no, I don't know what to do. It's up to you. He was silent for a few minutes more, his hand over the phone's mouthpiece, listening to the girl at the other end of the wire, then he turned to Bowman. She wants to see the letter, the original. Not a chance. She trying some of her humor? That letter doesn't get out of my hands. If she wants to see it, tell her to come here. I certainly won't take it to Vegas just to give her a look. But this is important to her. You can't blame her for wanting to see the original. A copy wouldn't mean anything. She'd want to check her father's signature. Tell her to come here. Foster spoke into the phone, then turned back. She can't this week, and the case starts next Tuesday. That's her worry. Didn't either you fellows ever hear of a photostat? Sam Boyd said in a lazy voice. They looked at each other. Foster seemed to be asking Bowman a silent question. Finally, the man shrugged. Okay, but who will take it over there? I will, said Sam Boyd. There's a place in this building that will photograph your letter. Come on. An hour later, he had the photostat and his instructions. Bowman had tried to back out. Foster hadn't seemed anxious himself. The fight seemed to have gone out of the lawyer. He seemed ready to quit. That wasn't like him, and it worried Boyd. Not until after his boss had gone for the evening did he remember that he had never seen Ann Norcross. It would be too bad if he gave the photostat to the wrong person. There should be some way to identify her. He thought of one and went whistling to the files. Under N, he found two files on the Norcrosses. There was a letter bearing the girl's signature on top. Carefully, he studied it before closing the drawer. Boyd took a plane for Las Vegas the next morning. Arriving there, he drove to the address that had been given him as Ann Norcross's home, asked for her, and was admitted. The girl who came to the room in a few minutes was blonde and cool-looking. 
The coolness impressed Boyd more than anything else about her, for outside it was hot. The desert sun had roasted him on the long run from the airport, despite the fact the calendar said spring. You're Mr. Boyd? You have a copy of the letter? The photostat, he corrected her, drawing the envelope from his pocket. You won't mind signing a receipt. It's for your own protection, Miss Norcross. He produced the receipt and handed it to her. Charlie glanced at it. Turning to a small desk, she crawled, scrawled her name at the bottom of the paper. Boyd accepted it, glanced at the signature, and a tiny frown was the only indication he gave his surprise. Then he looked up. Something wrong here, he said. You're not Ann Norcross. The girl had been waiting, one hand extended, the other hidden by the edge of the desk. No, she said shortly. I'm not Ann Norcross, but I want that photostat. She brought her other hand into sight, exposing the small gun which it held. Shall we argue, or do I get it? I never argue with guns. He was being distantly polite as he passed the envelope across the desk. Outside the house, the car made noise in the driveway. The girl backed away, still holding the gun. She opened the envelope with a free hand, drew out the photostat, and glanced at it for an instant. Then her lips curved in a smile. Very nice, Mr. Boyd. There's a closet over there on your right. Open the door. I'm going to lock you in. I trust you won't smother, but first, shall I take charge of this? She had stepped up behind him, poking the hard nose of her gun against his spine. With a deft movement, she reached around and got the small banker special from under his arm. Then, with an extra shove, she hurried him to the closet and locked the door. He could hear the faint click her heels made on the red tile of the floor outside. The closet was small and dark and close, and Sam Boyd was big. It was a tight squeeze for him even to turn around. The walls were thick and muffled sound, so he could hear nothing after the closing of the other door. But, hearing that, he waited no longer. He put his shoulders against the rear wall and, using his left foot, proceeded to kick out one of the door panels. The wood split under the third kick, and he managed to reach through the resulting hole, turn the key, and unlock the door. He pushed it open and stepped into the room. His small gun lay in the exact center of the desk. He picked it up, breaking and noting that the cylinder was empty. Gaining the entrance in a dozen running steps, moving fast for a big man, he pulled the door open. A yellow roadster was just turning from the long drive into the main road beyond. He had a glimpse of two people in the car and thought that one was the blonde, but could not be sure. The cab which had brought him from the airport was still parked at the edge of the drive. The driver, hunched under the wheel, was eyeing him thoughtfully. Boyd watched the yellow car angrily for a moment, then turned and walked toward the cab. Did you, did you see the driver of that roadster? Yeah. The driver shifted slightly and squinted after the speeding car. Know him? Yeah. Sam Boyd lost patience. Look, friend, I'm not playing guessing games. If you know the character, tell me who he is. If not, get off from under that wheel and let me punch your nose. The driver took a look at Boyd, at the heavy shoulders, the lean waist, and the gray-blue eyes that glimmered a little under the edge of the snap-brimmed hat. He grinned a trifle weakly. No offense, partner. The driver's name is Bowman, Roger Bowman. He's some kind of big shot from Los Angeles. His outfit built a plant at Vegas a couple years ago. Not a muscle, Sam Boyd's face showed his surprise, and he wasted no trying, time trying to guess that Roger Bowman should have given him the photostat yesterday and gone to the trouble of having the blonde steal it back today. This is the Norcross Ranch, isn't it? The driver nodded. No Ann Norcross when you see her? He got another nod. Was the blonde who left in Bowman's car, Miss Norcross? The driver shook his head. Boyd decided that it hurt the man to talk. Any idea where Bowman hangs out when he's around Vegas? Yeah, he rented the old barber place over on Mountain View Road. Supposing, said Boyd, opening the car's door, you take me there. 
and don't kill yourself gossiping on the way over. When Boyd finally reached the house on Mountain View Road, after a long drive, he saw that it was surprisingly large. It stood back in a grove of cottonwoods which marked the course of an underground river. Telling his driver to wait, he went up the path toward the porch. There was no sign of the yellow roadster, but there was a small coupe parked in the drive. There was no response to his knock, so he tried again, glancing at his watch. It was almost an hour since he had left the Norcross place, and Boyd had a suspicion that his driver had purposely taken him all over the desert before coming here. Still, no one appeared, and Boyd walked back down the path where the small coupe was parked. There was a California registration slip strapped to the steering post as he bent in, trying to read the name. The car was registered to Ann Norcross. Boyd swore under his breath. As a general thing, he'd like trouble, for it made things more interesting. But there was something going on here that he didn't understand, and he did not like mystery. He went back to the porch, conscious that his driver was watching him. The door was fastened, and he went over to one of the windows, trying to the screen. He heard a call and looked around. The driver had his head out of the cab. Hey, you can't do that! Who says I can't? With the help of a knife, he managed to work the screen loose. There was a fairly wide crack from the upper lower sash, a crack which would admit his knife blade. He thrust it in, reached the catch, and managed to turn it. Behind him, he heard the sound of a motor. He spun around yelling, but it was no use. The cab was already in motion, and Boyd's yell merely seemed to increase its speed. Boyd started to swear, then grinned wryly. Guess the jockey doesn't care for housebreaking. Well, there was $4 on his meter. Let him try and collect. Boyd turned back to the window. It went up easily now that the catch was free. He stepped over to the still into a long room. The Venetian blinds were three quarters closed, making the place shadow, but he could vaguely see the book-lined walls and the heavy furniture of a library. He had pushed the blind aside to enter, and he reached backward now and tugged at the cord to flatten the blades. Light came through to show him something which he had not seen before. A man lay on his side on the floor near the hall door, his back toward Boyd. Chapter 2. In Custody For an instant, Sam Boyd did not move. Every nerve in his big body was alive, tense. The gun came out from under his arm as by instinct to nestle so deeply in his big palm that his stubbed nose hardly showed beyond the curving edge of his big fingers. Then he remembered the blonde who removed the shells from the cylinder and with a little grunt of self-disdain he shoved the gun back into place. Carefully, he moved forward as if fearing that his soles would slip on the bla- thick nap of the blue Chinese rug. His eyes were intent on the figure, watching for motion, for sign of life. There was none, and Sam Boyd understood why as he bent forward to give the body a closer inspection. There was a deep scalp wound from which the blood had leaked down through the hair to the rug, so deep a wound that there could be no question but that the man was dead. But Sam Boyd gave the wound only a passing glance, for his eyes had locked on the dead man's face. It was Roger Bowman, the man who had given him the photostat, and then sent the blonde to take it away, the man who had driven the yellow roadster away from the Norcross Ranch only a little over an hour before. Sam Boyd didn't like death, and he liked murder less. There was something about murder that demanded action. It imposed a mandate upon the living, forcing them to take action, to do something. Sam Boyd didn't want to do anything. He hadn't liked Roger Bowman, and the man's death left him utterly unmoved, but there was Foster to be considered. Foster had given him a job to do, a photostat to deliver. The photostat had no commercial value, or did it? Certainly it had value to Roger Bowman, or rather, the letter which it reproduced had had value. And Anne Norcross, what about her? Where was she? Her coupe was parked in the driveway. Was she somewhere in this house? Boyd turned, scowling, and pulled open the door into the hall. The whole business was a mess. The temptation was to get out of here now, to get back to Los Angeles and forget the whole jury business. Boyd soon found Ann Norcross, though he didn't know who the pretty girl with tape on her wrist and, and tape across her lips was until he freed her. All he knew was that some pretty girl had been bound and left sitting in the corner of the pantry. 
Her reaction was hardly what he expected. He had hardly freed her mouth when she said angrily, Perhaps you'll tell me the meaning of this. I'd hope that you could tell me. You might start with your name. She gave him a long, steady, questioning look. Her eyes were brown and large and level. There was no fear about her. I'm Ann Norcross, she said finally. I suppose you aren't the man who tied me up. He shook his head, and somehow she believed him. What happened? I came out to see Roger Bowman. He phoned me this morning. When I knocked, the front door opened and I stepped in. It was dark in the hall, coming out of the light. I thought the man I saw was Mr. Bowman, but I couldn't be sure. Whoever it was grabbed me before I knew what was happening held a cloth, some sweet-smelling stuff over my face. Chloroform, Boyd guessed. She ignored the interruption. When I came to, I was bound, gagged, in that pantry. I don't know how long I'd been there. A long time, I guess. Boyd nodded. Bowman had evidently lured the girl here to clear the way for his blonde to receive the photostat. But who had killed Bowman? Bowman's dead, he said, and told her who he was and what had happened. She listened, her face not changing expression, even when he mentioned the photostat. But when he mentioned the blonde who had impersonated her, she spoke all right. That's Laura, she decided without hesitation. Laura? Jack Dillon's girl, Laura Bingham. I've heard her name is... But she is known only as Laura, and she is the star of the show at the Horseshoe. Boyd nodded slowly. He had heard of the Horseshoe, a nightclub and gambling place, but he had never seen it, the place that opens his last visit to Vegas. This doesn't help us. We... He stopped short as from without came the sound of several cars turning to drive. Visitors, he muttered. He thought of the dead man in the library. This was going to be bad. Very, very bad. He took the girl's arm and hurried her across the kitchen to the porch beyond. Several khaki-clad men were coming up the walk, and the one in front carried a heavy service gun. Hold it, you! Sam Boyd held it, but the girl with him pushed forward. What's the matter, Al? The man with the gun stopped, staring at the girl. Why, Miss Norcross, what are you doing here? It's a long story, but you... How'd you happen to show up here? Sam Boyd already knew the answer, for he had spotted the cab driver at the edge of the driveway. The uniformed man confirmed his guess. That lug, he indicated to the cab driver, came bursting into the office of somebody who was crashing in the Bowman place. He looked at Sam Boyd. Know this man? She surprised Boyd by nodding. He's a friend of mine. He works for my lawyer. He came over from Los Angeles to see me. But what's he doing here? The khaki-clad man was still suspicious, although he had replaced his gun in its open holster. He came to find me. I've been held a prisoner here since before noon. A prisoner? By Bowman? She shook her head. I don't know, and we'll never find out from Roger Bowman. He's dead. The policeman, a sergeant, looked at Sam Boyd with angry bafflement. I don't get it. This Roger Bowman was a big shot. Why he owned that new plan out on the road to Boulder? Why would he want to tie... Miss Norcross up, and how'd you know she was here anyhow? Boyd shrugged. I'm psychic. The sergeant scratched his head, shoving his uniform cap back to expose a shock of thick black hair. Ugh, the chief is going to want a better story than that. Suppose you come down and tell him. You too, Miss Norcross. Do we ride with you? Sam Boyd asked, elaborately polite. Or will we be allowed the luxury of this cab? Take the cab. One thing about this country, you aren't going far unless we want you to. Sam Boyd, gazing at the wide expanse of sweeping desert, agreed sadly. That was the trouble with this country. 
In early days, its remoteness had made a perfect hiding place for outlaws, but times change. The very remoteness, the few main roads, made it a place in which escape was almost impossible. A phone call or a wire, and the officers would be waiting along each of the main highways to pick you up. He turned without a word and piloted the girl toward the waiting cab. The driver lounged beside his vehicle, eyeing Boyd uncertainly. Uh, I hope you ain't mad about me going for the cops, but a man's got to be careful. And when I see a print at that window, I says, Herbert, this is no place for you. I should forget the four bucks I owe you. But I won't. The police station, my man, and don't spare the horsepower. The police chief was small and old and tired looking. His white hair needed cutting. His mustaches drooped a little and had a brownish stain at the ends from contact with the cigar which he held clamped between his thin lips. He listened without comment to the sergeant's report, then ignoring Boyd, looked at the girl. Well, Anne? The girl moved a little uneasily under the stare of his level blue eyes. That's about the way it is. This man, she indicated the silent Boyd, was sent down here with some papers for me. He didn't find me at my place and went over to Bowman's. Why? When the girl fumbled for words, Boyd picked it up. He was used to thinking on his feet, used to matching wits with some of the smartest lawyers on the coast. Bowman was a former partner of Miss Norcross's father, he said easily. I knew that. I'd also seen him drive away from the Norcross house with a girl in his car. I thought it might be Miss Norcross, so I had the taxi bring me over to Bowman's. The driver will bear me out. That doesn't explain why you should pry open a window. Doesn't it? Miss Norcross's coupe was parked in the drive. I figured that if she was with Bowman, she would most certainly come back after a car. I wasn't going to sit down in the sun and wait, not when there was a nice, comfortable house handy. I suppose you always break into houses merely to wait. Why not, said Boyd. I knew Bowman wouldn't care. Maybe he did, said the chief softly. Maybe he met you inside the house, objected, and you killed him. He hadn't been dead long when my men got there. They stared at each other. Sam Boyd's lips twisted a little. Maybe, he said. I never argue with cops. If that's what you think, Chief, lock me up. But you better make it good, because I don't think my boss would like the idea my boss is one of the best lawyers in the world. I don't like smart people either, the Chief warned. And I don't like being accused of murder, Boyd said levelly. Then tell the truth! The Chief had come out of his chair. Tell the truth or maybe we'll pound it out of you. Boyd grinned. This was the kind of language he understood, the kind of people he was used to doing business with. I can save you trouble, he said softly. Call up L.A. Ask the boys down at headquarters just how far you get, pounding information out of Sam Boyd. It's been tried, my friend. A lot of people have split knuckles from pounding against my hard head. Think pretty well of yourself. The chief had dropped his voice. He settled back in the desk chair, his whole manner changing. No, said Boyd slowly. Matter of fact, I don't. I'm probably something of a heel when you come right down to it, but calling me that is a privilege I reserve for my friends. The chief chuckled. I almost like you, he said, but that doesn't mean I'm going to let you get away with murder. I don't think that either of you are telling the truth, at least all the truth. I can't beat up Miss Norcross, and for the moment I'm willing to take your word that a beating wouldn't make you talk. You can go now, but don't leave town until I say the word. Boyd's mouth twisted. I'll bet I'd have a swell chance, he said bitterly. Come on, Anne. Silently, the girl rose and followed him to the door. When they reached it, the chief's voice stopped them. When your conscience begins to hurt, I'll always be here, ready to listen to your confession. Boyd shut the door quietly. He didn't speak all the way down the dirty hall, nor as he held the door for the girl to pass outside. 
But as they walked toward the gaudy lights of Fremont, he said softly, That old devil's smart. He knows that something is going on. He's bound to find out sooner or later about that photostat. Have you mentioned it to anyone? She shook her head. When he does, Boyd went on, he'll be sure you hired me to kill Bowman to keep him from showing that letter in court and exposing your dad. You didn't by any chance kill him at that, did you, Chick? She turned startled. What are you saying? You saw me tied up. He nodded. What am I saying? But then I'm a heel. As I told the chief, I think of things like that. You might have had help, a friend who tied you after you bashed in Bowman's head. You're crazy. It helps. This is a crazy business. You didn't know about your father's tie for the Germans, did you? If you had, you'd never have started that suit to recover his share of the company. My father wasn't tied up with Germans. My father was one of the most patriotic men who ever lived. Boyd sounded mocking. I suppose he signed that letter I saw from patriotic motives. I don't know what he thought he was signing. You see, my father was so nearly blind that he could barely find his way around a room alone. Roger Bowman tricked him. We knew it then, although my father refused to believe it. Dad thought the company was in a bad way due to the war. He sold out because he thought his blindness made him a hindrance rather than the help. Boyd whistled softly into the darkness. A nice man, Bowman. I'm almost sorry I wasn't the one to slam in his head. A shame Foster didn't know this. She nodded. I told him on the phone yesterday. He was much surprised. Boyd thought Bowman was in for more surprises. He meant to wire him as soon as they got back to town. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening this week. And just a reminder that if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production, and we'll be back with a new episode next week.